What Christians believe about God shape how they live. The character they attribute to God defines how they relate to God and thus relate to reality as a whole. But what if all this is just anthropomorphism? That is, they are wrongly attributing human character to reality in saying that God is personal, wise, or loving. After all, wouldn't God be, wouldn't reality be beyond the characteristics that apply only to us? And the classical Christian answer is that it is, in some sense, wrong to describe God with those characteristics. But this is not because God is not personal, wise, or loving, not quite. Rather, because these words are inadequate. There is an unspoken caveat to everything we say about God. Now, caveat is the Latin word for beware or be warned. Beware of what? That our talk about God, our talk about the infinite reality, has inherent limitations. And that's what makes continuing our conversation in God worthwhile. Welcome to What Do You Mean God Speaks, where we explore interesting ideas and insights in Christianity for the skeptics who want to understand religious perspectives to the Christians who have questions about their own beliefs and everyone in between. I am Paul Sungwajung, and this is our sixth episode, What Do You Mean by God? Part 2 why everything we say about God comes with a caveat. Do you notice how babies keep putting things into their mouths, say, before they learn words or even how to walk? It's called baby-mouthing, and one key reason is that it's how they interact with the world around them and learn. It's not like they can read and write or do complex maths at that point. More seriously, They've yet to learn language, and the motor skills and the senses on other parts of the body, like hands, are not yet adequately developed. Their mouth, their sense of taste, is their best resource they have at that point in their lives for learning. How things feel in their mouths, how they taste, is how they start learning about things around them. Clearly, that's limited, but that's where they start. Likewise, our thinking about God has to start somewhere, and we have to do so with what we have, with words and language available to us. However, everything we say about God or about reality, infinite and comprehensive, is rather limited. Not wrong, nor pointless, but fundamentally limited. And that's the idea that the Christian and really thinkers and mystics all over the world pointed out since the ancient times. Let me give you two examples from two opposite sides of the world. The first is from the opening lines of Lao Tzu's Tao Te Ching from ancient China. Couple of things first. No, I probably am not pronouncing the title correctly. Also, my reading of these lines are from comparing different English translations, then comparing them to Korean translations, which are culturally closer to the original Chinese text, and then comparing those to the Korean transliteration of the original Chinese. Then finally checking if all of those make sense compared to what I know of the Taoist philosophy. So that's my process of translation. It's limited, and that's my caveat. Anyway, here it is, Lao Tzu's Tao Te Ching. 
The Tao that can be described is not the true Tao. The name that can name things is not the true name. That which is not named is the beginning of heaven and earth. That which is named births everything that exists. Without intention, one may observe their subtle mystery. With intention, one may observe their clear boundaries. Both are the same, but have different names. Now the idea of the Tao has very close parallels with the idea of the Logos in Western philosophy. And if you listen to the fourth episode, God, Science, the Universe, and the Flying Spaghetti Monster, you should know why that should interest us. Now, the Logos literally means discourse, whereas the Tao literally means the way. But both ideas are about the principle underlying everything that exists and how everything happens. In fact, the Chinese Bibles often translate the word Logos in the opening lines of the Gospel of John with the word Tao. And according to Tao Te Ching, the Tao cannot truly be described. Words, names we humans use to describe reality, the Tao, are not the true name. But that which is beyond our names is the beginning of all things, and we do give it a name to that which bring forth all things. We are still trying to speak about, to point ultimately to the Tao. Well, let me stop here and switch over. We'll get to the last three lines later. On the other side of the world, the ancient Hebrews were also grappling with the idea that we can't name God. Here's the passage from the Bible from the book of Exodus. Then Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I tell them then? God said to Moses, I am that I am. And this is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now this is a key passage in the Bible where God's name is revealed to Moses. Otherwise, God would just be called, well, God. The original Hebrew phrase in this passage is, Eye Asher Eye. Again, I make no guarantees regarding my pronunciation. Anyway, this phrase is commonly viewed as a basis for the name Yahweh, which is the personal name of God given to the Israelites, the people of God. If you're looking for that name in the English Bible, Yahweh is written as Lord, L-O-R-D, with all the letters capitalized. Now what's interesting is what the name means. The Hebrew phrase Eye Asher Eye has the following possible translations. I am that I am, or I will be who I will be, or I cause to be what I cause to be. Which isn't really a name, so much as either a refusal to answer, or the name that is undefinable, and at the same time encompasses, well, every possibility of everything that can ever be and ever happen in the whole of reality, which is infinite. You see, there was a reason why in our first episode I translated the idea of God as reality for the listeners who don't believe in God. But beyond this undefinable and infinite I am that I am, how else do you describe God? Christianity has this following idea worked on by figures like Pseudo Dionysus in the 5th century to Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century. And the gist of the idea is something like this. 
It is true that adequately describing the infinite reality, God who is the creator of all things, is impossible. Any word or concept that we use are used to describe things inside reality, or in Christian terms, things that were created. They apply to those things, to beings like us. Words like person, wisdom, or love describe us, well, the good parts of us, and not God. Even words like great or powerful or even existence describe things inside our world to objects, forces, or entities. They do not truly apply to God. So does that mean whenever we talk of God, we are speaking falsely, saying something of God which is not true? If we talk of God as wise or loving, are we just not using anthropomorphism, ascribing human attributes falsely to reality? And their answer is, no, when we are talking about God, we are using analogies. Even in this series so far, we often use metaphors to describe the idea of God, specifically God as a creator. That is, the idea we describe consisted of analogies. So in the first episode, we explored the analogy of the author to the story. The author may not appear anywhere inside a story as an entity, nor does anything in it, but everything that happens and everything in the story is still the author telling it. And God is like an author, because all of history is God's story. But beware, whereas the human authors live out their own stories in a world outside their stories, there is no outside to God's story, since God's story includes everything that exists and everything that ever happens. Or in the fourth episode, if our reason can understand the principle that structures all of reality, and if our language can describe it, then that means reality, in an important way, is like a language, a speech, or a discourse. That is the idea of the logos of God. God speaking everything into being in Genesis as a creator. But beware, the logos of God is like a speech. And only because our logos, our speech, can describe it somewhat. So our language about God has limits, and analogies, these metaphors, are the way we use to push ourselves as far as we can against our limitations. But we should not let the words metaphors or analogies mislead us into thinking that they are inaccurate or, to quote, only a poetic way to describe things. What do I mean? Well, we have a tendency to think that about metaphors because often we have the literal way of saying things to compare our metaphors with. So, for example, if I say that student is like a stealthy cat when he sneaks into the class late, I don't literally mean he's a cat. If I were to record its movements and show it to a choreographer or a cat burglar, they may have better vocabulary to describe its movements without using metaphors. In the case of speaking about God, though, the analogy is the best we can do. And that shouldn't be that strange of an idea. Let me give a couple of examples. Black holes, which is a term to describe a region in space-time where the gravitational pull is so strong that not even light can escape. Everything within its event horizon will fall toward it, so it's like a hole, and it's black. Except that black holes are neither black nor are literal holes. 
there's a Hawking radiation that they emit, so they aren't black. And they are actually celestial bodies with mass, so they aren't holes. But to figure that out, to really understand that, at least the one about the Hawking radiation, you need a proper kind of language to talk or even think about them. You know, all those equations on the blackboard, which to those of us who don't know that language seem like arcane spells with numbers mixed with them. With ordinary everyday language, black holes are usually the best we can do to describe what those are. I think a better example, though, are terms like the fabric of space-time. Now, we know that neither space nor time, or to be more precise, space-time, is a fabric. After all, fabric is something we humans craft to drape over ourselves and other things. But we use the term fabric to describe space-time because, according to Einstein's theory of relativity, space and time is not simply coordinates of where and when things are. They are things themselves, like matter and energy. Space-time can bend, stretch, or contract, like fabric. But again, everyday language cannot truly describe what the theory of relativity is describing. You need a special language for that, and math is a kind of a logical language. But what if everyday language is the only language available to us? That's true, at least for those of us who aren't physicists. If so, we depend more and more on analogies to understand these ideas. Just check how many metaphors and analogies really good science communicators seem to use when they're speaking to a general lay audience. And if we use these analogies in describing these ideas, it does not mean that we do not understand them at all, nor does it mean that we are speaking falsely about them when we use words like black holes, fabric of space-time, quantum waves, or other stuff. They are inadequate. But they're the best we can do with the language we have at our disposal. Though, I should note that scientists themselves often use analogies and metaphors to craft their thought experiments and make breakthroughs. Anyway, what happens when we are trying to describe something that no existing human language, no possible human language can ever describe? Well, we used analogies. Everything we say of God is analogical in that sense. To say that we are saying something true of God is to say that they are the best we can say of God. They are the best analogies we can offer as human beings to describe God. After all, what's the alternative? We are humans after all, and if, if not a human description and analogies, then what? Ferrets? But how do we know whether our analogies are true? I mean, we know analogies as scientists tell us are true because there is a more accurate description of reality, like those equations that the analogies are based on. Well, the analogies about God are far wider in scale, the widest possible scale. And when Christianity claims that what it says of God is true, it is claiming that the analogy it is using to talk of God has no better alternative, at least no clearly better one so far. So think of the analogy that God as a creator is like the author to a story. Now, the history of the universe, well, the history of everything, really, is a story. We describe it in narrative format. We cannot do otherwise. So the best analogy of the creator seems to be that of the author of the story or God who speaks the universe into being. 
On a related note, think of the idea of the logos of God through which all things come into being. The idea that the laws and the principles that compose the universe is the logos, God's rational speech. Now at the most general and widest level, reality is like a speech or a rational language because our logos, our reason and language can understand and describe it. Obviously, it's not a speech like sound made by air passing through our throats and mouths, but reason tells us that this seems to be the best analogy we can make, or at least a very good one. Likewise, many other key ideas of God are basically making a similar claim. Our reason tells us that they are the best analogies to understand reality as a whole at the widest level, or at least they are respectable contenders for the best analogies. However, there are some other things Christianity says of God that are not purely based on reason, but revelation. Those are things Christianity claims that the people of God discovered. Discovered in the sense that you would discover that your friend volunteers at a homeless shelter, or that your mother treasures that photo of you taking the first step, or that your father was actually Santa Claus. You can't get to those truths simply by reasoning. You find out. And very importantly, you find out because you are meant to find out. That is, your friend, your mother, or your father reveal them to you. We'll talk about what that implies in some other episode because we are still talking about analogies to describe God. And here's where the last two lines of Tao Te Ching that I quoted become relevant, as well as the remaining reason why God introduces himself as I am that I am to Moses. Words that we use Names we use to describe things depend largely on the specifics of how we relate to them. To quote Lao Tzu, Without intention, one may observe their subtle mystery. With intention, one may observe their clear boundaries. Now the text literally means without desire, but it's not necessarily negative. Though I suppose in Taoism, desire often has some negative connotations. But here, I think it's pointing out something more profound. We name things often based on the context of how we relate to it. Take the seat you're likely sitting on while listening to this. Why is that a seat? A chair? It could be described as a lump of matter or whatever it's made out of. Maybe it's not even a proper chair, but a tree stump or a cushion or maybe even a table. Hopefully it's not something even more exotic like an animal or a person. So why a seat? Because your relation right now to it is you sitting on it. Our relation to what a something is becomes the context in which we choose what word or what name we will use to describe that something. There's always more to that something than that name, but for your relation to it in that context, that name is appropriate. Is it soil for your potted plant? Or is it a mixture of organic matter, mineral gases, and organisms? Or is it the stuff you need to clean after your dog played in the mud and came home? Your intention, desire, your relation to it sets up the name for what they are. That's the clear boundary Lao Tzu was talking about. What about God then? In the Exodus passage, God tells Moses, I am that I am, which can also mean I will be that I will be. In that passage, God then tells Moses, I will be with you, using the exact same verb. Translation, 
you will find out Moses who I am by seeing what I will be doing through and around you. The names that will be appropriate, the best names that you as a human being can bring up to describe me will come from how you and I will relate to each other from now on. That's why there won't be a set defined name. God is beyond names. Hence, I am that I am. But names that you will discover, that will be revealed to you, you will find out by living out your life and witnessing what happens when God goes with you, whatever that means. Now, this does not mean that we won't ever make a mistake or use wrong analogies or even use right analogies but carry them too far. In fact, the entire story of the Bible is largely about the various wrong turns the people of God make in relating to God and understanding Him and how they were eventually corrected. But just like how the child grows and matures in how he understands and relates to his mother in the parable in the last episode, the core of the relationship between God and God's people can hold constant, while what those mean specifically, the different ideas, understandings, and indeed analogies, can change and grow. As to whether that's enough, we'll have to find out by following the entire story of the people of God. And in the case of Moses, God tells him to go to Egypt, the most powerful country in the world at that time, and rescue a marginalized group of people in slavery there. When Moses objects, saying, that's impossible, God tells Moses, I will be with you, again using the exact same verb in I am that I am. And at the end of Exodus, after God leads Moses and the rest of the Israelites out of Egypt and from their lives as slaves, Moses meets God again, and there he finds that there are now more names to God. And the expanded description was this, Yahweh, Yahweh, God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping his love for the thousandth generation and forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet by no means overlooking the guilty. And those were the best words Moses discovered to describe the reality he experienced, God who walked with him. And this is where we leave off. If you enjoy this content, please subscribe, follow, leave a like, or drop a line on my Instagram. I would really like to hear from you. There will be a mid-season break next week, though there will be a shorter bonus episode. And I hope you'll join me the week after for the seventh episode, Why God is Not a God. Until then, I will be waiting here.